Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. I appreciate the prayer. appreciate the prayer for our trip. I'm a little nervous about my travel companion though. I heard someone asking him if he was looking forward to the journey. He said, yeah, but he's really nervous about being bored on all those flights. Well, I plan on sitting beside him on all those flights, so I guess I'm quite boring. Um, So at least you don't have to listen to me preach for the next two hours. Um, So, okay, it won't be exactly two hours. Um, No, in all seriousness, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We've begun a uh, series as we're walking through Mark, and we've gotten here to chapter 4. Last time we looked at chapters 3 and 4, and again we're going to look at an extended portion of Scripture together this morning as we look at Mark chapter 4 all the way to Mark um, chapter 6. At some point this week I was emptying the trash in the house. I was walking around from room to room in the trash bag and Salem, our soon-to-be two-year-old in a couple months, was following me and she kept saying to me, um, lovey, that's her little stuffed animal, hiding. Um, So I kept saying back, okay, well, go find lovey, sweetheart. Lovey's hiding. And she kept following me from room to room. Lovey, hiding. Well, sweetheart, go find Lovey, and every time she just looked at me dumbfounded, and finally, towards one of the last rooms, I looked in the trash bag, and there was Lovey. Um, Lovey was hiding um, in the trash bag, and Lovey about met Lovey's uh, in fate. Um, well, uh, right before my eyes was Lovey. The interesting thing is, Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, lots of books written on him, lots of courses you can take about him. I'm telling you, the best place to find out about Jesus of Nazareth is in the Bible. And oftentimes, he's, quote, hiding right in front of our face. I want you this morning to see how explicit the God of the universe, I mean, incredibly explicit, has been about who this person, this Middle Eastern man born a couple thousand years ago, who he is, and what he does, and why he came. Alright, so, if you have your Bible, if you don't, it's okay. You can look up here on that screen. You could try this one, but that's going to hurt your neck by the time we're done with this. Or you can open up your Bible on your phone, or, or heaven forbid, you have a, a paper copy. Um, and we're going to go from Mark 4.35. I'm going to read all the way through Mark 6.6. 6. Um, listen as I read. This is the portion of Scripture that we'll be considering together. Mark 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, this is Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Him with them in the boat just as He was. And other boats were with Him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But He was in the stern, asleep. On the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Chapter 5. And came to the other side of the sea 
to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs, that's the graveyard, a man with an unclean spirit, that's a demon. So He's in the area of the Gerasene region, and there's a man who meets Him who's demon-possessed. Now, I'm going to call him for the rest of the sermon the uh, Gerasene demoniac. That's a lot easier than saying the man possessed of a demon who lived in the region of the Gerasene. So he's the Gerasene demoniac. We're together? All right. Verse 3, He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with the stones. And when Jesus saw from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, Why? Have you, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with them. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again, In the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him as he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogues. This is a religious man. Be like a a local pastor today, something like that. Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come. And lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. In verse 24, and he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. For she said, If I touch even His garments, I will be made well. And immediately, 
The flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power had gone out from Him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And His disciples said, You see the crowd pressing around you and you say, Who touched me? And He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. And He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35, While He was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And He allowed no one to follow Him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. The funeral had started at this point. Verse 39, And when He entered, He said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Verse 43, He strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Chapter 6, verse 1, He went away from there and He came to His hometown and His disciples followed Him. And on the Sabbath He began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard it were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have given it to us. Father, thank You that You have revealed Yourself in the written Word, but You have been kind to reveal Yourself in the Word made flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, Spirit of God, by Your Word would You move in the midst of Your people. There are helpless people here today, lost in darkness and on their way to hell. Spirit of God, would they meet Your Son, Jesus, and be saved today. 
Lord, there is not one child of God here who has been saved, who is not himself or herself a helpless person short of the hand of Christ touching us. Give us humility and grace by Your Word today that we would serve differently, that we would serve with passion and joy that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has rescued us. Let Your Word feed Your people today, O God. We ask these things to You, Father. We ask them through the name of Jesus that You would apply them now by Your Spirit. Amen. Well, as we consider the passage this morning, I want you to see, we're going to walk away with three main observations. You could do, there's a lot more observations from a huge passage like this, but there's at least three, and I've tried to put them in order of what I think the Scriptures are calling the most priority. So the first one, the one with the most priority, then second, then last. So the first one I want you to see, and the main thrust of the passage, and the reason I think it's all one section The biggest takeaway, the biggest observation is that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, has power over all. Jesus has power over all. In this passage, we see that Jesus has power over the physical world, over nature, as He stands up and tells the wind and the waves, quiet down. Now last Sunday, uh, Dad and I had the privilege of watching all the little ones while their parents were at a child training seminar. So we didn't have any children's workers. We were it. That was it. So we were in a room together with all these children. If I remember rightly, it got quite loud. If I remember even more correctly, we had a real hard time getting them quiet. Jesus stands up, looks at the winds and waves of the universe, and He tells them, you quiet down. The wind and the waves obey Him. He has power over the natural world. But He doesn't just have power over the natural world. We see in the encounter with the Gerasene demoniac, He has power over the supernatural world as well. Notice that the demons, they go ahead and just come to Jesus. They go straight to Him. They go to Him as if they are going to go ahead and begin the negotiations. They realize that Jesus has full power over them. And notice that Jesus demands from them a name. You tell me your name. Folks, that is a declaration of authority. And they respond back their name. It's legion. Legion because legion would have meant one of many, one of thousands. It's the amount that a, of a company of Roman soldiers, probably around 6,000. We see that there are so many, and this is why I think he cast them into the pigs. He takes a demon who's in one man and casts him into a herd. Did you hear how Mark described it? 2,000 pigs possesses all those pigs and they kill the pigs. What does this show? This shows that this was a lot. There were a lot of demons. It also shows exactly what they had in mind for that man. They were going to kill him. Jesus merely speaks a word. And this man is healed. He has power over the natural world. Jesus of Nazareth has power over the supernatural. He also has full power to heal. 
He healed this woman simply by her touching His garments. And notice, this woman was not only tortured physically, she was tortured financially. She had spent all that she had. She was tortured socially. She was considered an outcast. Would have been considered unclean. And therefore, we know she was tortured physically, I mean, uh, emotionally and mentally. Jesus has full power to address her situation. He healed her without even saying a word. Jesus has power over the natural world. He has power over the supernatural. He has power to heal. And further, He has full power over death itself. You know, i got to tell you, as a father of a daughter now, I read this text a lot differently than I remember reading in the past. I grew quite impatient with Jesus making His... A trek from the seaside to where J- Jairus lived. I was thinking as I'm reading it, hurry up. This desperate father who has given up the last moments of his daughter's life to go ask for help. Jesus shows His immense power by raising this girl from the dead. Jesus has complete power over death. The observation is this. It is clear, crystal clear from the text. Jesus has power over all. But what does this mean? Please, it's not just a random conglomeration of stories. Mark is arguing forcefully that Jesus is God. Let me show you how that argument plays out. We're going to walk through each one of these briefly and let you see it's not just that Jesus is powerful. It is a direct argument that He is God. The Old Testament makes clear that there is only one person who has power over the seas, the depths, and the winds. God alone. We opened our worship this morning with I love Psalm 107. We opened with that. And what do we see there? Yahweh alone can save from the winds and the depths and the seas. It's consistent across the Old Testament. God alone, who brought the flood and saved Noah from it, is the only one who can save from the seas and the winds. Amen. Jesus saves from the wind and the seas. And His disciples get it. Do you remember what their reaction was when all this happened? They turn around and says, Who is it? that even the wind and the seas obey Him? They see it. What about the Gerasene demoniac? Let's go all the way back. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's set up right there. There, the promise is made by God that a Messiah, a son of Eve, would one day crush forever the power of Satan. As God says that although Satan will bruise the heel of the Messiah, the Messiah will crush his head. The Apostle John in 1 John 3, chapter or verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We have already seen that the clearest articulations concerning who Jesus of Nazareth is in Mark has already come from the mouth of demons. They declare He is the Son of God. And that's continued in this passage as Jesus is met by the demons and the demons say, what have you to do with us, Jesus, the Most High God? They recognize Him for who He is. 
So while Mark records and the demons is asking not to be sent out of the country, Luke actually goes further. He says the demons request not to be thrown into the abyss. That is not to be thrown into hell. The demons realize that Jesus Christ is there to bind them and to throw them ultimately into the pit of hell. They are asking, begging for some time. That's all they're doing. Just give us a little bit more time. They ask for more mercy and Jesus shows authority that He is God by granting the request. He has power over the nature, power over the supernatural, power in uh, all of those show that He is God and He has power to heal. You know, it's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot of healing recorded for the amount of text that we have. But almost every single instance is tied directly to God Himself. Furthermore, we're promised in the prophets, I'm thinking here in particular of Isaiah uh, chapter 61 and Jeremiah chapter 33, where we are promised that when the Messiah comes, so with the Messiah will come healing. Not only does Jesus show that He can heal, but He heals an unclean woman. How? By her doing what? Touching Him. Does this sound familiar? I hope it does. Mark chapter 1, He heals a leper. How does Jesus heal him? He touches him. Why does that matter? Just like this leper, this woman, by Jesus touching her, she should be making Jesus unclean, but instead Jesus makes her clean, just like He does to the leper. Nowhere in the Old Testament is anybody save God alone shown and given the authority to make somebody clean. When Jesus heals this woman and makes her clean, it is a statement that He is God. But He goes much further, much to the amazing joy and relief and gratitude of Jairus and his wife. Jesus shows that He has power over our ultimate enemy, death. When sin entered our world in Genesis 3, think about what happened. We lost our authority over nature. It was supposed to be in submission to us. We lost that when sin came. Entered now our susceptibility to, to demons. And then also entered now the opportunity for sickness and disease. But the ultimate consequence of that rebellion against God in the garden was that death entered our world. And then in Isaiah 25, we are promised that the Messiah will come and He will conquer death. And it goes further. It says, He will wipe away the tears from our eyes. I cannot imagine a more perfect fulfillment of that than Jesus of Nazareth standing over this dead girl and raising her from the dead. He conquers death. Oh, but brothers and sisters, He goes much further, doesn't He? He doesn't just wipe away the tears from her mom and her dad's eyes. He dries them up because He conquered the enemy of their soul. Jesus has power to over death. Jesus is God. So, so what do we do with that? Maybe you're saying, Tim, I, I really haven't questioned that. Well, 
be quite honest, that doesn't really matter. It's in the book of Mark, right? Whether we question it or not, it's there. But what do we do with it? First and foremost, the biggest application for today, for you to walk away with, is believe that the Bible's straightforward and audacious claim that Jesus is God. Now, I say straightforward because Mark purposefully puts these stories together to make a very straightforward claim. One of the biggest misunderstandings of the Gospels is that there are a bunch of stories just kind of thrown together. Nothing like it. Far from it. They are all arguments that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that He is the coming King, that He is the Son of God. I say straightforward because across the universities of this land and across the universities of the world in religion departments, there's professor after professor who should know better praying on naive students saying, well, if you really read the Bible, you'll see that it doesn't make the claim that Jesus is God. Folks, that is patently false. It's okay if you don't want to accept what the Bible says, but have the intellectual integrity to admit it straightforwardly claims that Jesus is God. I say audacious because it's a massive claim. Don't look past it. This is why the Bible argues for it. This is why we don't just have one Gospel. This is why we have four Gospels. And every one of them is a different way of arguing, He is who I've promised. You know, I have a, I have a lot of admiration for Thomas Jefferson. Almost every 4th of July, I reread the Declaration of Independence. And I am blown away every time that this man almost single-handedly wrote this thing in a couple of days. Blows my mind. But you know what? Jefferson knew what the Bible was claiming here. Why do I know that? Because Jefferson literally took scissors to the text of the New Testament and cut out passages like this. Why? Because Thomas Jefferson knew that this was straightforwardly claiming that Jesus is God and he knew how audacious it was. Jefferson certainly believed in the notion of God, but he did not believe in the one true God of the Bible. Folks, not everybody believes that Jesus is God. The Bible claims Jesus is God. If we are to have life, we have to believe firmly the audacious and straightforward claim of Scripture that Jesus is God. It separates Christianity from every other religion there is. This claim and this claim alone. And it separates us from being just another moral ethic. We should believe that Jesus is God because it is true. But since it is true, think of what that means. It means you can trust that whatever befalls you, Jesus can ultimately handle. Think of the things that Jesus is claiming control over in this passage. This means He has complete control over the physical world. There is no earthquake, no storm or tsunami that, that will ever land in your life that will separate you from the love of Jesus. He has control over the supernatural world. The demons cannot plague you as a child of God. He has complete control over sickness and death. There is no diagnosis. Swallow this. 
There is no diagnosis. There is no phone call you can get. There is no tragedy that can hit, that can separate you from the strength and majesty of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, death alone cannot, will not, has not stood up to conquer Jesus. But Jesus has conquered death. You can trust Him with everything. That's the first observation. Jesus has power over all. Jesus is God. The second one, I want you to see, and Mark just really is careful to make this argument. The helpless state of the rescued. So we're going to dive back in the text together. I want you to see where I'm getting this. I've said it over and over. I'll continue to say it so you hold me to it. Our job as preachers is to tell you what the text says. So let us argue it from the text. I'm telling you that this text is arguing that those who were rescued were completely helpless. Now let me show you why I believe that. The storm that blew up on the Sea of Galilee left a group of fishermen utterly paralyzed with fear. You saw it. Folks, it is intentionally ironic that this group of fishermen, paralyzed with fear, go to the carpenter on board and ask for help. That's an intentional irony. They're helpless. He's the last resort. It's like if Heather comes to me and says she has questions on something medical in our family. That's it. We're throwing it up at that point, right? This is, that's all we got. Or cooking. The garrison demoniac was utterly helpless. Horribly tormented. Just think of this man. I thought of this man this week. He plagued me this weekend as I thought of the life he lived. He's horribly tormented. He spent night and day in a graveyard crying and cutting himself with stones. And I know this. I hate pain. So the thought of somebody cutting himself and then there were stones. They weren't even knives. They didn't even have sharp stones. Think of that. That's horrible. Mark goes out of his way to make sure we know that not only was he helpless, nobody could help him. Did you see the detail he pointed out there? They tried to chain him, but they couldn't chain him. Mark is saying they could not only could they not help the man, they couldn't help themselves be protected from the man. Helpless. And then there's this woman. She has this horrible disease. Mark is so careful to tell us she's been plagued with it for 12 years. Forever. Well, at least it feels to her. What about all the physicians? Surely they can help. Mark is so careful. She's gone to all the physicians. Furthermore, not only can they not help, she's completely out of money. Similarly, the account of Jairus' daughter is told in such a way as to build up for us rightly the helpless desperation of this father whose daughter was dying. The point is, every one of these were utterly Helpless. Well, what does this mean? I've argued that these four accounts represent the effects of sin. That is, when sin entered, we lost control over nature. When sin entered, we became susceptible to the supernatural effect of demons. 
When sin entered, so also entered sickness and disease. And when sin entered, so also entered death. The point of this text, the meaning of this is, man, that's all of us in this room, is powerless to deal with the effects of sin. The disciples in the boat are no more capable to steer themselves to the storm there on the Sea of Galilee than we are to steer ourselves to the storms of our doubts and our fears. We can no more overcome our bondage to lust, drunkenness, gossip, covetousness than the garrison demoniac could rid himself of a thousand demons. We and all of our therapists can no more purify the taint of motives of our unclean hearts than that exhausted woman could heal herself of her crippling disease. We can no more stop the certainty of death than Jesus could hurry, sorry, than Jairus could hurry Jesus to the deathbed of his dying daughter. And we can no more raise ourselves from the rightful judgment of hell than Jairus could raise his little girl whose breath was no more. We are utterly powerless to deal with sin. It's so amazing to me that these passages come right after passage, er, chapters 3 and 4. I'm so helped by this. If you remember last time, we looked at those chapters together and we looked at the distinction between a Christ follower and a Christ fan. And we, we came out saying that one of the main points of these passages is that Christ followers will bear fruit. Well, I've had a couple of you come up to me and comment on the fact that that's very hard it even makes you wonder, am I really a follower of Christ? I get the question. I understand the question. I feel the question. Jesus' disciples felt that question. We're going to see in Mark 10, when Jesus teaches them on what it takes to get in the kingdom of God, that they'll turn around and say to Jesus, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response is so helpful. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, this is quoted a lot of times right before kickoff on a Friday night football game. This has nothing to do with the Friday night football game, right? That's possible with man. It's talking about something that's really not impossible with man. That's not in my sermon notes, so I need to move on. All right. I got to tell you, I'm so thankful that this series of, this section of scripture follows three and four because I think it saves us from a logical temptation. That is, follow me here. After hearing what three, chapters 3 and 4 require of followers of Christ in the seriousness of discipleship, we may be tempted to enumerate a list of do's and don'ts, a sort of spiritual checklist to ensure that, that somehow we are making the cut. But a passage like this is very helpful to keep us from doing that. Not, this is ironic, not because it tells us that things aren't as bad as we think. (laughs) Quite the opposite. If you're tempted to enumerate a list of things to ensure your rightness before God, this passage instructs you you are way too optimistic about how things stand before you and God. You may liken it to the over-optimism of an ambulance and EMS crew showing up at a graveyard. Yeah, true, they might have a good track record of reviving folks, but it's not that good. The passage tells us we are utterly helpless. And we, like each of these individuals represented, have only one hope, 
And that is Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. So what must we do? We must believe that we are powerless to change our sinful hearts. We are powerless to change our sinful hearts. That's at the heart of the gospel. God is holy. He will judge sin. Each of us is a sinner and stands helpless to save ourselves from God's just wrath. You may picture as being lost at sea and about ready to perish in a storm. Or you might picture, picture it as bondage to countless demons. Or you may pic, picture it as incurable disease or completely dead. Each of these rightly portrays our need for rescue. We are not rescued by the presence of our right actions or good choices. Nor are we rescued by the lack of bad actions and bad and wrong choices. Nor are we rescued by walking an aisle or by praying a prayer. We are rescued by and through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is our salvation. So we must trust that Jesus can rescue us from our powerless state. We believe that we are powerless and we trust that He can rescue us. He alone bears the punishment for our sin on the cross of Christ where God the Father exercised His anger on His Son. He calms the storm by enduring the storm. He cast out the demons by being cast out. He makes us clean by being made unclean. And He gives us life by His death. Last observation, final observation. I want you to see the various responses to Jesus. This is why you're probably wondering at this point, why why did you even include this part of chapter 6 there? I, I think this is very important what Mark is up to. This passage shows multiple responses to Jesus. There is the response, and this is in chapter 6, of his hometown church or synagogue. They utterly reject him. There's the response of the Gerasene villagers. You remember them? They come around to see what happened after the scene with the Gerasene demoniac. What do they want? They just want Jesus to go. Then there's the response of the disciples in the boat. They're stunningly amazed. Who then is this? Then there's the response of the Gerasene demoniac himself. What does he want? Wherever you go, I want to go. He just wants to follow. The folks from Jesus' hometown... Sorry, let me make this point. How we respond to Jesus reveals what we believe about Jesus and about ourselves. How we respond to Jesus reveals what we believe about Jesus and about ourselves. The folks from Jesus' hometown do not believe He is God, nor do they see themselves as helpless, and therefore they utterly reject everything He has to say. The Gerasene villagers demonstrated that while they were amazed, they did not see Him as offering anything they really needed, so they just asked Him to leave. Disciples saw themselves as helpless, but at least at the time, they didn't see Jesus as one who could solve it. And therefore, Jesus rebuked their lack of faith. But two responses stick out. It's not ironic they come from two very helpless people. I think the whole climax of the section 
is that moment when that woman bows down before Jesus. Verse 33, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. And He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman's insistence to get to Jesus through the crowd demonstrated the sincerity of her belief about who Jesus is. Now i got to tell you, I find that so interesting because had there not been a crowd, it would have been a lot easier for her to get to Jesus. And Jesus disseminated the crowd. How hard? How hard is that for him? Leave. I want y'all gone. In a second. Remember there towards the end? In a second he says, y'all go. And he picks just a couple of his disciples and then they go to the house. Jesus kept the crowd. It was hard for her to get to him. But when she got there, it showed the sincerity of belief. Couple that with her honest assessment of her great need. And folks, you see a right response to Jesus and the Gospel. I love that Jesus tells her, go and be healed of your disease. But wait a second. This woman has already been healed of her disease. Yeah. But Jesus says... Go experience the healing of your disease. Go live as one who has been healed. Just like He does for us. He saves you so that you may go live saved. That's how He does this. Then there's also the response of the garrison demoniac. He seemed to understand both who Jesus was and His need for Jesus. And how does He respond? He wants to follow. But Jesus instructs Him to do what? You stay here and you go and tell. (laughs) I like that. He is told to respond with mission and with service. Likewise, we are called to mission and service. As we celebrate the 29th anniversary of Cornerstone, it's hard to believe. It sure ages me. This seems like a fitting word from God. Jesus is to be our only cornerstone. And how will we know that is the case? When we are a people who worship with a real sense of awe because we worship with a real sense of helplessness and humility. How will we know? When we are a people who say, I may stay, but I will go and tell. We will be a people who are humble and trusting and worshipful. But we will be a people who are on mission, ready to go and tell of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I love the way that song we were singing, the bridge there, broken now made whole, we want to live for you. I think that is a fitting song for a church of the people of God. Broken now made whole. If you're sitting here going, I don't feel broken then you're probably not made whole. Only broken people get in. And all the broken people are made whole. Let's pray.